You notice that there's like like violence behind you, like the Pac-Man violence. Like this guy just went around eating people, man. It, you know, I, it, these themes have caused me to think about these things a little. Yeah, bit. man, violence, man, a lot of violence in Pac-Man. It's a lot yeah. of killing. You know, I picked it. I picked it for Peter, and and as people will see in the conversation, Peter Cosmala, like because he's like gobbling up so much stuff over a, over a long career. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, he he's he's absorbed so much, and uh, he's uh, he's he's he, he's broad, man, in a good way. I don't mean that in a bad way. It's not surface level. Like he's got a lot of depth in a lot of things. A lot of talking to him. I worked with him at Data Zoo, uh, and uh, I, he was just one of my favorite people to grab coffee with and just talk like about the world. Not you know, not just privacy and data and, and advertising and such. Just he's got like a. You know, his family's really important to him. His music, art, like he's, he's just a good guy, man. He's a good guy. He's, he's like, I think he's got like, what's the word I'm looking for? He's philosophical about all of this. Like, you know, a lot of people are very practical and that's great. That's very American pragmatism stuff, but like he's philosophical. I am too, man. Like most of my thinking around our work is less about the weeds. I know there are a lot of people who are much more technically savvy than me. I kind of operate at a, generally at a more like, philosophical approach to what privacy is who does it affect how does it affect people what does it mean when we make these decisions who should make these decisions you know i'm sometimes can be critical of like you know america and the europeans and how they like project their dominance over the world through even the lens of privacy these kinds of things and i think peter sees sees those issues as important where many practitioners are like i just got to stick to my day-to-day job i don't have time to worry about that stuff he called himself uh agreed with that and he called himself a globalist and i would say you know that's that's a piece of what you are or are becoming too especially as you take a policy role on you know being a globalist is really important when you are you in particular i'm talking about you now are working in a global platform speaking to global communities trying to deliver and create policy that impacts lots of people that have different cultural norms and understandings and um and different um you know needs to be addressed as consumers and people yep no i totally agree man and like facebook i don't like to talk about work much on our on our podcast but like kudos to facebook for hiring somebody like me and more importantly um giving me the like uh agency to speak up because i've never felt i can't make a comment or push back on a normative line of thinking or 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 suggest that we also consider people on the margins or 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 minority points of views as we make decisions and and i you look, Facebook is a complicated place with lots of things happening at once and the company doesn't always get it right. But I've been here now seven months, man. Like I am confident in the fact that intentions are good. Um, and that- I love to hear that, right? And you love to hear that yeah. uh, we've talked before about bringing yourself to work. Like you love that you can bring at least- Your authentic yourself. Right, the parts, right? The parts that are relevant. So we got to go- Can we talk about this, by the way? Love it. Can you see that? Can you see Love that? It. Shout out yeah, to man. Alice. 
Shout out to Alan. This is like automatically my, it fits me like a glove, first of all. It's the perfect red and it's not too warm. It's not too cold. So I can wear it all year long. Love it. Love Thank it. you, Alice, for my fire flair. I love it. <laughs> Swag I love it. all day. Swag Alice. man. All right, buddy. Here's, here's our conversation. All right, let's do Peter, man. I'm excited. All right, here we are. Hey, we're here, man. We're here. You're wearing an Alice. Oh, oh you saw Peter. Oh, you up. Look at that. And we got uh, our friend Peter Cosmala here, founder of Privat, which is privacy consulting business, course developer, instructor at York University, uh, all sorts of like, like old school depth in privacy. So we're going to get into that, but also advertising, marketing, and uh, music. So we're here. We're ready to go. Here is one of the one of the most networked and connected people. If you want to use the 80s term, he's got a deep Rolodex. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh oh. And I just like I love that. I love that. I love Rolodexes, by the way. My dad used to have one. And it, I just like the sound it makes, which is kind of weird. Um, and I never understood the point deep roll of dice because it's circle. But anyway, that's fine. We can talk about something else. Well, I got I got souped up. I used that roll of dice where you could actually insert the business card into oh, it. Oh, I remember. Okay. Yes, yes, so, yes. And I'm sure I still have it somewhere. Oh, my God. <laughs> Bragging about his Rolodex. <laughs> Just the Rolodex, not even what's in it. <laughs> uh, well, hey, so Peter, Just let's go, let's go back to the 80s for a moment. So, so okay. in the 80s, what were you listening to? I know you're a huge music guy. So what were you oh, listening gosh. to? Well, I'm going to betray my age here yet, but uh, I was the young punk rocker back in like high school, college days. Fine. So, um, And I was living in the, I, I grew up in the Boston area. So there was a fairly healthy, like local hardcore punk scene in Boston at the time. So only Bostonians may know, but bands like Gangrene and the Proletariat and Boys Life and the like. And then I went to Ohio, to Cincinnati, to school, uh, to the Midwest. Um, and then I started um, hooking into just a broader variety of bands. And I think from that, I, I was really plugged into the D.C. scene, which is ironic because I, you know, years later I would move and work in D.C. But at the time, I, you know, it's just this, you know, just this place. But but the. But the punk scene in, in D.C. was incredible. Bad Brains, first and foremost, major band uh, for me when I was young, uh, still is very influential, minor threat, um, government issue, bands like that. And I was also listening to other stuff um, that you, you know, was, was starting to build a, a presence on college radio like Elvis Costello, the B-52s, Devo, of course. That was the first concert I ever went to. Whoa. What about <laughs> first one uh, was Devo. The second was Van Halen. Now, woo, woo. That's a quantum leap, right? <laughs> uh, were you into Flock of Seagulls at all? No, no. But but some people, <laughs> some people thought I kind of looked like that because my hair was right. But... <laughs> <laughs> But no, I was not. <laughs> so Peter, like when, big wave. when you were working, <laughs> when you were working at CMGI, like CMGI is one of these old, older, one of the first players in advertising, marketing, tech. Did you like back then? Did you know privacy was a thing back then? Um, sort of. I mean, there was a seminal moment, and you you guys may remember it or you know have read about it. Um, and that was when, uh, for me anyway, it was like the seismic moment. And that's when uh, DoubleClick acquired Abacus Direct, which I think occurred somewhere around two thousand. So okay. I was at I was at CMGI so as of the nineties. So many Sorry. of our guests have raised that, like people yeah. like this moment, Abacus. It was yeah. 
it was a thing. It yeah. was because like we CMGI was all about, you know, leveraging data for various targeted content and advertising services. So it was an internet holding company at the time, a real big one, you know, made Dave Weatherall, this the CEO, made the cover of Business Week. It was essentially a portfolio of all these companies, some of which you'll remember, and they have connections to other topics today. For example, a company called Engage, um, Engage Technologies, where a certain young attorney named Trevor Hughes was working at the time. Yep. And I was across the floor at another portfolio company called MyWay.com, uh, which used to be known as Planet Direct. It was, a, it was an ISP distributed consumer content service. Um, so Engage made this like targeting and segmenting technology. MyWay.com was doing this consumer-friendly AOL style content. AdSmart was an ad technology company. There were other companies in the portfolio like GeoCities, one of the very first online communities. Um, can we talk about GeoCities for a second? Can we talk about Sorry? it? Can we talk about it? Yeah. yeah. My first website ever was on GeoCities.com. Yeah. Then right. I graduated to AngelFire.com a year wow. ago, which you may recall. But can we talk about how big the ad banner was on GeoCities.com? Oh, my God. See, it that was, was just it. That was like the early frontier, and everyone was yeah. just feeling it out. Like, what, what yeah. worked? You know, there was the 468 by 60. You know, IEB had defined the standard. But a lot of folks were just trying to get their hands around it. Like, where do we put it? What, how, what do we measure? Like, how do, what do we say? What does the creative do? Um, but I don't want to get – I want to answer Andy's question, too, which is that, you know, that seminal moment of, of the FTC suddenly saying – well, you know, you online company can't just acquire this and offline data company and then combine those assets because without the awareness and consent of everyone involved, because that's a problem. And, you know, meanwhile, we're churning away at CMGI and we're like, oh, because, you know, we, we thought it was like marketing nirvana. Like that is, that's, that's the Xanadu. Like you just combine all this data and you get were the perfect were, image were of the consumer. Worried? Were people worried because um, when we talked to Trevor, and, and others like that moment, that abacus moment when DoubleClick acquires abacus, like that's your biggest competitor at that time. Were, were you all yes. worried? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they were, um, I, you know, you could say CMGI was pretty big, although it, you know, it's dispersed along all these holdings and DoubleClick was certainly the, the player. There were others at the time were like a Sipiter or NetGravity. They all had different sort of, you know, angles to what they were offering ad, ad tech wise. It wasn't even called ad tech back then really. But I think it, it just forced a, realiz a realization on us that, oh, yeah, we have to start thinking about this issue. And that's, you know, I had, I had heard of privacy tangentially. It wasn't a completely alien concept to me. I mean, I'd been in the web for some time and there was some discussion of it. But this notion that, you know, that it's a core issue, that there's, you know, greater awareness of the laws regulating it, the very role of the CPO, that was all very new. And, um, and you know, the IPP at that time didn't exist just yet, but, but soon would. So you were also also at CMGI was Mike Baker, who was the CEO yes. founder of DataZoo. He was the, the general counsel of Engage at the time. That's right. So, so he was Trevor's boss. And that's actually Trevor's how Trevor boss. and I came to know each other. Yeah. And you have three people now who are, you know, pretty seriously involved in, in this stuff over the, the, the time of their career at very young moments in their career. So that's how you met Trevor. And when did you and Trevor start talking about privacy? And then you joined the IAPP, right? That's right. Well, you know, the dot-com bubble burst, you know, certainly shortly thereafter in the early 2000s, I decided to kind of wait that out and sort of see how the marketplace would sift itself. I, I, I consulted independently for a time. I became involved with a great organization that's still around today, which is Upstream Group, you know, Doug Weaver's company, which specializes in, in uh, sales training and, and sort of market understanding of how, how to sell in this, in this digital environment. He's brilliant. Probably the best sales guy I've ever worked with or known. Just amazing. But he, um, I worked with him for a time and I was, I was sort of just waiting for like, 
what, what's what's happening? Like, what what can I advise you know clients of upstream in terms of how to navigate through this? At at one point, um, and I worked for another company called Progress Partners, which is a very successful venture capital firm now based in Boston, originated in Boston, but also in in New York. Uh, Nick McShane, uh, a CMGI or himself, he was a marketing guy at CMGI. Went on to construct a really terrific portfolio of companies right now in in the digital media and advertising space, doing tremendously well. But Mike Baker was like, you know, years later, he's he's on to Grand Banks Capital. He's become a VC himself. He then goes on to End Pocket as CEO. And he's, uh, just, you know, he's putting people together and he's like, you know, Peter, this, I know you know a lot about, you know, tech and digital media and, and the associated issues. And I know this other guy who knows a lot about that too. And he's just started an association. In fact, he's working for two associations as, as executive director. One is the NAI, the Network Advertising Initiative, and the other is the IPP. And I had heard about the NAI. I had not heard about the IPP, but he was like, you guys ought to meet. And, and to make it even more interesting, I had just moved to Maine from Massachusetts and where... Uh, where Trevor was also based. Um, so we met over lunch and it, it was a fabled meeting because um, you know we were just kind of like having a conversation and we came to a quick resolution because he was like, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm managing the NAI, but I'm also building a profession, you know, this nascent young privacy profession. We need to develop education and, and learning standards around this. We need to develop you know, an awareness, a public profile so we can grow this, get members, build urgency around this issue. Part of that is launching a certification. And I had never done that before, but I had done a lot of work in professional development, helping people to understand the environment from a standards level. I'd done that in digital media. I knew the internet very well. I didn't know healthcare or finance or these or, you know, children's privacy or these other issues, but I soon would. So he took me on board as director of certification to launch the CIPP. And I, I led that effort in, in 2004. And classic Trevor story, like, I think we had like a second meeting to sort of hammer out the details. And I just like, that was a breakfast. And we, we met that morning and I was like, you know, we'll, you know, going in, I'm like, we'll probably work out some terms and, you know, go back and forth for a few days and maybe a week or two from now, we'll, we'll have this hammered out. That afternoon, I'm on the phone and I'm working. <laughs> I'm talking to the advisory board of the certification. It was like that. <laughs> we made the deal. We went right back to the office and we started. So that, that's when the, you know, a long process, but a very successful and important one began for the creation of the Certified Information Privacy Professional, the CIPP, the first certification in privacy, which was launched not a year or two years later, like most certifications are, but that October. So March 2004, and by October 2004, the first class sat for that exam. 150 lucky people who are out there today, the pioneers who wrote that, uh, that challenging first exam. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't realize that he, is, that he, Trevor, is known for moving so fast. <laughs> well, he was. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm sure he does today, too. I, I, I'm not as familiar because I'm not working with him now, but, but, uh, but I consider him a mentor and a, and a great friend. Great things. I just, found yeah, I, I've been on two, two IPP advisory boards, and I'm going to yes. tell you right now, they all move at violent speed. So, like, I think that's probably Trevor DNA. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The stats Which, will tell you that. He, he moves, <laughs> like, that's he moves people not. fast. Yeah, I mean, they, you know, they're, they're an amazing team, truly, on every level. I, you know, particularly the conferences that they execute and all the resources they give you. Um, it, you know, I consider the, even if I wasn't in privacy, I would consider the summit uh, and PSR, you know, two of the very best conferences of any variety. And I always go. And I've been since 2004. <laughs> yeah. So, Pedro, what, I'm interested in that, that question about their events. Why, why do you feel it, it, they're so good in general? Well, they're well executed, first of all, because a lot of conferences are laggy, disorganized messes. Um, so just like the execution piece is well done. 
like the way they engage sponsorships isn't overbearing and obnoxious like some other conferences. Like I don't feel like I'm getting sold timeshares or whatever. And then, um, but there's a lot of value even in the, I forget what they call it, but like we're all the vendor, the vendor lobby or whatever that is, even yeah. vendor hall, whatever, even that is really well run. But the other piece is like the way that the conference is like the cadence of the conference itself, like social upfront, the, like, I don't know. I've been 150 conferences. Who the hell knows? You know, like at least 100, right? Like just the pace of the conference is well done, and it allows a lot of room for do to for me to do things that I like to do, which is less sit in a panel and listen, and more like have sidebars, have one on one, get have small group sessions, like these kind of things. Meet with like well back then, meet with clients. Now meet with you know colleagues, whatever. It was when I was a law firm lawyer. It was like an amazing experience to like meet new people and try to get business. I think they do a great job of not booking times. Exactly. Meaning, meaning like point. they don't book morning super early. They don't book, they, they stop in the evening and they let the law firms and the, the businesses um, that want to business have happy hours and want to have dinners and want to have like their own content. They spread it out over a few days. Like, you know, what is interesting and that I do miss about the in-person stuff that you both will, will, I'm sure agree with me is like those, those evenings at that, at that, particularly the DC summit, when like every, lots of firms and such are hosting dinners and they're just like frantic texting to try to get people to come to their dinner to make sure, to make sure it's well attended. And you're like hopping between three, four different places to see different people just because it's yeah. fun. I mean, if you're, you know, if you're one of the desirables and and who isn't like people are trying to talk to you or they want to dine with you and particularly with your, you know, I'm not giving away a secret here, I hope, but like the IAPP itself was pitched quite heavily. So, you know, Trevor and I and several others on the management team and even folks that were running individual areas like membership, uh, you know, events, whatnot, were, you know, were heavily pitched, like come to our dinner tonight. And it was always a difficult decision because you don't want to play favorites. They're all fantastic. Uh, You know, a lot of great companies invest time and money. In, in making this production possible every year. And as Trevor famously always used to say at the beginning of the event, this is the biggest ever. And it always is. It, it's always bigger than the year prior. Um, it, it's, it's now, you know, it's incredible. I know I never would have imagined back then that it's, you know, over 5,000 people now, the summit every year when it happens, despite the conditions we're in now. But, you know, even now, the potential is even greater because you don't have to physically be somewhere. There's more people that can, that can join from around the world. So it's truly in 70,000 members. I mean, gosh. That's I hate virtual conferences, though, just being straight about it. Yeah. I, 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 nobody cares. I've been to a few, like, as speaker, and as, I hate them. I, they're not interesting. I, it's hard for me. I Are you anxious don't. to get back to the I room? Need to be, I, like, that's, like, there's an entire part of my personality that is dying. Um, like, there's, there, you, like, the virtual conference is fine, but the, it actually does the reverse of what Andy and I were saying, which is, like, there is not enough platform and space to do these other valuable things. True. Like true. Dinner with somebody, do a one-on-one. Like I can't right. just sit on a Zoom and somebody asks an interesting question and be like, hey, let's go grab some coffee. Like I, you know, I'd, I'd love to learn more about what you're talking about. That was a cool question. I can't do that. I can email you and hopefully you reply if I can figure out who you are and all this other crap, but it's not the same. So like that organic human part of things sucks. Now, if I was learning about privacy, it would probably be super valuable to me still because you listen to smart people talking about they know a lot about. But like at this stage, at least for me, it's like, okay, I'm here for something. Yeah, that's, a, that's a great point as an attendee. And, you know, as a presenter, even you can't read the room. Like if you're a good speaker, that's you right. want to know, that's you want right. to get that vibe. Like, is this clicking? Are people lighting up? Are, I see some confusion over there. 
you just don't know. So you just right. kind of have to fly, right? So that's right. You know, you and I met in one of those those spaces that the IAPP we did allows yeah. for. another fabled meeting at lunch, at, uh, <laughs> breakfast or lunch. I forget. But like, yeah, we same thing. Mike Baker introduced us, and that's right. uh, you know, we just uh, we obviously hit it off. And then you know, three months later, you're working at Data Zoo. I know, and I have you to thank for that because I, you know, Mike was like, "Hey, great, two great guys getting to you know getting acquainted on privacy." sharing insights with the latest. I was, I was more than happy to do that for Mike. You and I hit it off great. And I was like, maybe I'll share with Andy what I'm thinking of doing next. Like, I really like this guy. We're, we're clicking. Like, I'm going to share some of my, my objectives. And he's like, well, you ought to talk to Mike again, but yeah. in a different way. Yeah. <laughs> and then that got rolling. So yeah, that was and great. Then, and that's uh, when I came to Data Zoo. And then a year later, we're doing our uh, sideways road trip to Napa together. <laughs> nice. <laughs> So, so uh, yeah. just a quick diversion, like later we'll get back, but later I was, uh, shout out to Twitter because I was in San Francisco and I went to Twitter's office and I had lunch with Scott Hodes and Andrew Woods, two, two great, great, great friends guy. from Twitter. And they took me to lunch in the Twitter cafeteria, which if you have not been, is amazing. You know, amazing. Yeah. Uh, three rooms, all sorts of different cuisines. They're, they're, very, wow. they're very lucky at Twitter. And I'm like, Peter, are you driving to Napa? Because there was this DAA summit. Um, right. And uh, he's like, I'll pick you up. Pick you up at Twitter. <laughs> and, uh, he pulls up and we're just off on this road trip uh, out to Napa. And we talked up in a Dodge Charger, I'll have you know. Oh! Yeah. Right? Good record. It was black. It was like jet black. That thing was Boy, ready sure. to go. Boy, Did we have sure. a sunroof? I don't remember. I don't think we had a sunroof, but we had a motor. That's for sure. <laughs> Yeah, we made it to Napa, and that was. Yeah. Uh, Did you guys do any donuts in the streets? Uh, <laughs> Privacy yeah, donuts. We were drunk on wine. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> to remember. So, so speaking of DAA, tell us about uh, managing director of the DAA. When you were yeah, that was that was really interesting. I uh, you know I was starting to after nearly ten years at the IPP, I was just starting to get an urge to get closer to where the poli policy was being made. Mm -hmm. Um, because, uh, you know, IPP is based out in lovely Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and is very well connected to everything that was happening. I, I just wanted to get more, get closer to like, where is this going next and how can we help shape that? And obviously the natural point for that in the United States is Washington. And, you know, through a series of conversations, I became introduced or aware of, of, the, of the DAA effort, which I knew about because we had actually at the IPP, we had done a, like a webinar on it when it first came when the, you know, the framework, which is right here, actually. Yeah, the original guide, you know, the original principles. Here we go. Look this, at that. The original self-regulatory principles that. Uh, were launched in 2009. And then, uh, you know, you just obviously- keep it handy? You just oh, I do. Just... It's, right, it's right here in the holster. <laughs> got yeah. to whip it out to quote something. You keep it in a holster? <laughs> oh, dude. Dude, I've got the other ones too. Like, you want to do the mobile? I got it right here. <laughs> I love the idea of a privacy code holster. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> like utility belt? Yeah, yeah. Well, privacy. Do, what, 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 do you keep something handy on your on your desk or whatever, like that you refer to quickly, like CCPA? Uh, yeah, like the what? CCPA. I hate you as a person, <laughs> dude. I have a who does not have a privacy book? Just kidding. I got mine's, mine's within reaching distance. It's I've right got here. them all right here. I've got them all right here. Um, <laughs> and I keep the EDPB guidelines on my desk at all times, just to, like, refer to them quite a bit too. But like. um I love that you have these old books, man. This is this, yeah, yeah. This is fire. 
Well, I've got, um, yeah, I've got some collector's items. It's funny. Like I've got the original privacy by design that Dr. Ann Kawukian wrote and, and like the very first certification textbook, you know, number one. Um, yeah, it's so really good stuff. You go anyway. DAA, you go DAA, you run DAA, <laughs> yes. which I get, makes sense to me. Then you go be the head lobbyist at the four A's. Were you, were you a lobbyist specifically, or was that a different, was that a, what were you doing at four A's? I mean, that was, a, that was, <laughs> what a was great, that all about? That was a great, uh, a great um, job, I think. Thank you. Um, yeah, it was great to be part of it. It's a great organization and, and urgently needed because, uh, you know, it's a very volatile market where agencies are still figuring out what are their, what is their identity and their purpose and their future, uh, you know, in an environment where they're competing, not just with other agencies, but with Google and with, you know, Accenture and non-traditional players um, and, and in this, you know, ever evolving media environment. But the 4As was one of the founding members of the DAA and forming it. So the, you know, the ANA, the, the 4As, the NAI, the IAB, um, you know, the CBBB part of uh, the, the um, Council of Better Business Bureaus, the DMA at the time when it existed. Now it's part of the ANA. And I, you know, my that years, the, my years that's, of, sorry, that was the most acronyms in one sentence I've ever heard. I'm exhausted. I got to go. Hey, hey, let's that's go to the book. Cool. Okay, here it is right here. <laughs> <laughs> there's your, there's your roster so you, you guys want to see something cool that's why can i, got I show you guys, can i show you guys something cool and totally derail the entire conversation yeah. so i have this thing right there we go i but remember wait, that well wait for it wait for it eggy eisenhower yep wait for She's it awesome wait for it wait for it look under her name though can you see that uh, you can see it right there, there it is there's the editor oh, there it is. <laughs> i was covering this up because i stole this from my law firm's library <laughs> Carlton Fields, uh, shout out to Carlton Fields. Thank you. They paid for my certification. In 2013, man, that's when I got my CIA acquisition. Well, well done, Pedro. And thank yeah. you. Thank you for the thank shout Thank you for out. your guidance, kind yes. sir. Yeah. That was the that was the first case book the IPP ever published. Yeah. Like looking at FTC yeah. cases. And you know, it's ring bound. It's not a real book yet. No, uh, Peggy, Peggy did incredible work on that. So hats off to her. And she's can one of my all-time favorites. Can I, get, can I get that on the Kindle? I don't know. <laughs> a, I think it's out of print now. Digital version. I mean, this is ten years, nine years old, whatever. But yeah. like, I think there's digital versions of all of it. So, Peter, what what was the four A's like? Were you, were you... Yeah. So let me. Sorry to get back. To so I I was at you know I was the first managing director of the DAA because they needed to operationalize that. Um, after, you know, it needed someone to sort of drive it forward, grow grow register, you know, grow certificates in the program, increase the profile of it. 4As was a part of that and putting that whole organization together. And, uh, and to make a long story short, they essentially poached me from, from the DAA, you know, after a year of, of success and particularly in building a, um, a comprehensive ad campaign around the ad choices theme, which was done through uh, um, uh, a, 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 a division of McCann Erickson that was based out in Salt Lake City. They did a great print and online campaign. Um, and I really quick click with the creative team and 4As was like, this guy works great with agencies. He knows privacy. We need him in Washington. And Dick O'Brien, who's my Washington mentor, he's now retired. He was the executive vice president of, of the four A's and the, and the director of the DC office. Um, we clicked really well too. He was the representative of the four A's on the DAA. Uh, and we had a conversation. He's like, well, have you ever thought about lobbying? And I, I hadn't, and, and it sounded intriguing. And again, I wanted to connect closer. I was in DC now as part of the DAA, but I was doing more program stuff. I wasn't really on the Hill a lot. Um, I was you know, familiar with people there. But now is an opportunity to start to really drive, you know, privacy awareness with government, but also represent a number of issues, not just privacy, but tax policy, labor issues, you know, children's advertising, food and beverage advertising, um, intellectual property, 
things like this, a very broader portfolio that appealed to me. And so I became SVP of government relations for the forays, working for Dick, it was just the two of us in the DC office that, you know, the, the association is headquartered in New York. Now, Alison Pepper, formerly of the IAB, serves in that role. She's terrific. Um, and uh, it was fascinating. I mean, that was my, you know, my six years of being a full on shoe leather lobbyist up on the Hill, uh, Congress, the White House, the regulators, FTC and FCC. And the uh, Capitol Grill. Staff. Sorry. The Capitol Grill. The Capitol the, Grill. The um, Elephant and Castle. Else. The Caucus Room, which I don't the think. The Caucus anymore, Room. Right? Yeah. So, you know, and, and uh, gosh, a bunch of places. Yeah. Lunches. Wow, $35 <laughs> lunches, man. Wow, $35. I had, a, I had dinner with Marsha Blackburn and a bunch of other people and met, you know, nice. Diane Feinstein and Marco Rubio and like, you know, a bunch of people. Some I liked, some I didn't like so much, but like, you know, that's not the thing. You got to go in there and represent your agenda. You leave your own at the door you've got issues to move forward. So it's, exactly. it's all very relationship-based, fascinating experience. You, you come to learn how Washington really works. Yes. Uh, how, and it's not just lobbyists, like there's advocates too, and there's other people from other perspectives in Civil those same rooms. So it's a lot, yeah. What, what, what was there on the Hill, the general awareness of like privacy? Well, that would depend on, on who you were talking to, like Al Franken, when he was serving um, and Alfredo Bedoya, who at the time was his chief of staff or his legislative director is now on his own. They were great. Like, you know, talking to Franken's office, you saw you saw that he got it like he, he was very keen on mobile privacy issues and particularly, you know, stalking applications. He was he had, you know, had a whole series of hearings around that. You know, others, you start to get into, you know, forgive me, you know, like the, it's like the the. Uh, you know, it, it's basically like, an, you know, a retired old white men's club in, in a way, you know, they're having their staff print out their emails. That's kind of the level of <laughs> Let's start there. Um, you know, and you're trying to explain how OBA works. It's like, whew, that's an evolutionary process, let me tell you. So, but you know, you just patient, you work through it, you, you know, you build, uh, you, you become a resource to them in many ways. And that's good. Just like they, you know, when they need information, we're not the only sources, but they're reaching out and saying, you know, I heard about this, you know, mechanism or technology, tell me more about it, come on in and talk to us. But I would say, you know, the literacy level, and this is, this is a while ago, this is what, 2012, 13, you know, it's not, um, you know, Leibowitz was chair of the FTC, he was, you know, threatening legislation, that was one of the reasons the DAA came together is like to, you know, to counteract that, form a self-regulatory framework, attempt to do this from the inside, industry having more frankly frequent more frequent and more impactful contact with consumers so in a better position to sort of help these issues along so that was you know that was the environment and and it was uh, it was a matter of just getting people up to speed on how this works um, why you know where regulation could work but where it actually would not be working very well where it could be destructive and counterproductive even for privacy purposes what do you guys think are the mount speaking of the people that get it start starts who do you guys think are the, I have written this down, who's them on the Mount Rushmore of privacy? Yeah. And I don't, I don't um, know if it has to be five, you know, or whatever the number is, but who's that? Like, who, who do you guys think? Yeah, I think for me, I, you know, I go back to the people that are, I consider my mentors early in the field and who are, who are still significant figures, giants in the field for me. I call them the wise elders. No, no disrespect, but that's a, that's a, that's an expression of respect actually. And many of them are, are, were the original IPP board of directors. So like they are the reason this all came together. It was through their, it was through their vision, their influence, their understanding of what the market was then and where it was going that allowed us to do things like we need a certification and we need to establish an office here and we need to have this kind of a program. It didn't come all internally. 
you know, it starts with Trevor. You know, he, he, he was a, a major figure for me who introduced me to a lot of people who allowed me to travel the world, literally, which I'm eternally grateful for because that was so enriching professionally and culturally and to get to know everyone around the world to make it truly international because it is. But then I think of other people like uh, Kirk Nara, who was just awarded, you know, the IPP Vanguard Award, still doing it like 30 years later. He's doing awesome work. And I consider to be the single greatest health privacy mind in the world. Like if I ever have a problem or a question, that's who I go to first. Um, Chris Zolads, who runs his own consultancy today. Back then, he was the CPO at Marriott. Um, John Berard, probably the smartest communications guy in privacy that I've known back then um, and, and now, too, with Credible Context, helping companies understand how to communicate in this environment. Um, Agnes Bundy-Scandland, who was really a, a seminal figure in finance privacy or financial privacy at Bank of America, at uh, Bank Boston back when it existed. Um, and she's now retired, but she was one of the originals. Um, Richard Purcell, I, I love Richard Purcell. Uh, Richard and Paula, based out in Seattle. He had Corporate Privacy Group, the original CPO at Microsoft way back when, you know, way before the Brad Smith era. So it's interesting, um, it's interesting, Peter, to look at the concept of a privacy Mount Rushmore and your your lens on it, which is totally valid, right, is the founders yes. um, or the, the sort of like creators. Be interesting to think about that with a different lens, maybe like who's who's providing you know sort of depth and thought leadership now as well as is that i think you know jules trevor some of those people stand out to me pedro what about you what do you think i mean i think we can't forget like lewis brandeis <laughs> okay let me call him now yeah and like sam warren you know these people like kind of are really the true founders of the entire thing um in a sense um but like I'd love to see some people of color mentioned, like um, Joy, who's doing all this great work at MIT, um, Harry Pearson, who was uh, like out in front of this at IBM before it was cool. Um, uh, and there are others, like some of the advocates inside the ACLU that have been working to like protect people from police search and seizure yeah. nonsense for 65,000 years, I think deserve some, some attention. They might not be like what we think of as privacy practitioners, um, but they've done a tremendous like uh, amount of work to preserve people's ability to keep the government out of their business, right? So like, uh, there's a lot of names out there and organizations. Um, I think amongst I IAPP membership, we tend to look internally, but there's a lot of people who may not necessarily fit the IAPP member mold that have done tremendous work for privacy uh, rights in America. Like, um, you know, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg comes to mind, right? Like, <laughs> Like the lawyers who argued Roe v. Wade on the right yeah. side come to mind, yeah. right? Like, um, and the, you know, like, anyway, there, there's a lot of real big, like, kind of philosophical pioneers that we tend to, we don't tend to think of Roe v. Wade as a privacy case. We forget about Louis Brandeis and whatever the, what was the, whatever the document was, the, the uh, article was called, Right to Privacy, right? right. Um, uh, like this is like seminal stuff, groundwork. Yeah, I agree. Those are those are great suggestions, Pedro. And um, and you probably know like Jeffrey Rosen's book. Um, you know, he now yes. Jeffrey Rosen now heads the Constitution Center in Philadelphia. He wrote a great book on Brandeis. You know, real short, compact, but beautiful book on, on how important that man is from a privacy perspective. There's also some great women in the field that I admire greatly and have been, I think they're doing cutting-edge thinking today and always have for me. Michelle Dennity is one. You know, yeah. she's been at Sun, she's been at Oracle, she's been at McAfee, now she's at another company. Peggy Eisenhower, I mentioned earlier, uh, who to me is my like privacy law uh, scholar, 
who, who always led our, our cert certification training in that effort and does great consulting work today. Leslie um, Lambert, who's a great CISO uh, for a member of different companies. Uh, she's, she's tremendous. Um, I'll give you two more women, like Joy, yep. Joy Bolomani, who, who yes. from MIT. Was, yep. MIT. And I'm trying to remember, and I'm drawing a blank, Weapons of Math Destruction. The yeah, Mary, is it Kathy O'Neill? It's Kathy O'Neill. Kathy O'Neill. Yeah. Like, yeah, she's awesome. Mentions, so like, in the AI field, are, absolutely. Yeah, yeah the, the Algorithmic Justice League, absolutely. Yes, and the whole Algorithmic Justice League, that whole group. Uh, Nicole yep. Turner-Lee comes to mind. Like, just some smart... Ruha Benjamin, she's amazing. Exactly. So, like, yeah. super interesting, amazing I think, people. Um, yeah. I think privacy as a as a practice area, and as a as a profession, um, is one one of the lesser white male clubs. I think. I think there's there's um, a lot of, and I don't. I'm not quite sure why that is. There's obviously a lot of a lot of you know white men going back to Brandeis. Uh, working on some of this stuff but uh feels like feels like it's where, where there's some um modicum of a mix there no nah, it is but i also i'm it's sorry still, i'll just be straight it sucks and it's still super white male dominated and it's super anglo dominated um field it just is and well, a lot hang of on like, i i would i'd beg to differ i think that i think the the thinkers we've talked about that could become more diverse. And I think that's frankly more on, on the part of, you know, us recognizing them. It's not that they don't exist. They're there. It's just like we need, there needs, there needs to be greater visibility and attention. The, the composition of the privacy community as a whole, at least historically, has been one of the, the most diverse in my experience. Now, I don't, I'm not in the IPP now, but certainly through the first 10 years, um, you know, we would do an annual member survey. I believe they still do this. And have a very good grasp of like you know the the, the gender makeup, the ethnicity, the the levels, manager, director, CPO, um, the geographic distribution, and certainly from my standpoint, and I can only speak from my own experience um, of all the industries I've been part of, it is in fact the most diverse. And and I think you sometimes see that when you go to the summit in person, and and you just look out on the floor and you see like wow, there's young people, there's old people, men, women. I would say in equal measure. Yeah. There's there's you know there there's African Americans, Indian, Asian. Uh, Latino, it's, 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 a, it's a fairly broad mix, certainly in contrast to related fields like information security or IT audit or, or GRC generally. I That's where I was going to go. Those tend to be fairly milky white and very male. Well, That's I'll where say I was going to go. I was going to go in comparison. So like, yes. you know, you can't do that. I agree I'm with sorry. you. I, I got to push back on you guys on this. No, you can't do that. You can't say, you that, can't do other, that. <laughs> you can't say that there are other fields that are shitty. And so we're doing better than the shitty ones. No. There's no question that information security is white male dominated, but so is the practice of privacy. It's white male dominated. It's overrepresented by white men significantly. I'm a Latino in this space. There are very few of us, especially in positions of power. Um, you know, uh, women of color are underrepresented across the entire law profession and compliance profession, but specifically in ours. Um, I would challenge you guys to name five chief privacy officers of color on Fortune 500 companies. I'd be interested to find them. Um, that, by definition, makes it underrepresented. And so I think we've got a long way to go. And I don't like the comparison to like fields that are doing worse. We should look to fields that are doing better and say, how do we become that way? Because the, like, the equivalency with an underperforming group like suggest that we're performing at, an, at some sort of acceptable level and we're not. Yeah, no, that's fair. And I, I don't mean to suggest that it's at a performance level. It's simply at the, at the composition and relative in age as well, because the other, 
I mean, if you want to talk about the law profession, which is hundreds of years old, or InfoSec, which dates to what, the early 1960s, privacy is relatively young. It's, it's, yeah. if, it's 20 years old. So I'm not making excuses, but I am putting it in perspective. And I'm saying that, you know, frankly, the onus is on those other professions. Like, why haven't they gotten a little farther over that time? I, I do see a, a greater effort, um, certainly on the part of the IPP, on inclusiveness in terms of creating groups no or inviting people. And absolutely more work to be done. And we, you know, we need to bring that not just through events, but in the conversations that we have with clients and organizations and other meetings, even in informal discussions, even like this, where, where that has to happen. I absolutely agree. No question about the fact that the IPP has higher awareness than other professional associations about the need to take this seriously. I've been part of those discussions and I think they're excellent. A lot of work to be done. We're yeah. losing. We're losing. Like, this is not a victory. We were not winning. Oh, we're I'm not losing. declaring a victory. No, I know you're not. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just being the like, guy who says we're definitely losing. No, I, yeah. I like But I think, I think you've made a valid point within law and compliance as well, I would note. I think, I think the issues you're pointing to, they are evident, but I think they're especially acute in that. So I, and I'm not a lawyer. So I think, I, I think I've traveled a little bit more uh, in terms of other related areas, whether that's, you know, and, and just other areas that are now sort of part of that broader privacy definition where I do see that. And I'm encouraged by that. And it's not, it's not over, but I, I see it in ways that I haven't seen it in other circles that I've traveled over a similar period of time. I, I, I like your call out. I like your call out, Pedro, as a reminder, like that comparing is not a useful exercise, right? No. And so when you, when you zoom out like that and you go, no, like it's gotta be direct. So I'll give you the example of this playing itself out in the real world. Like, you know, companies do like, you know, wellness surveys and like happiness surveys all the time, right? And like, they're like organizational, like how are you feeling on your team? And how do you see the diversity and inclusion on your team? And how do you see whatever, all of these things, right? Um, and I've worked at a company in the past that did these surveys like every other company does. And the company consistently scored really positively in diversity and inclusion in, um, you know, uh, whatever, all of the kind of like accessibility questions, right? And then I joined the team. And uh, the score remained really high. It went down by barely nothing, which means it was me, right? <laughs> and in the meeting where we discussed the scoring, I said, uh, pump the brakes. We're not doing really well on diversity and inclusion because look around. If you ask a room full of white guys, if everything's doing well, <laughs> one person is saying this is a nightmare. The, the, like, the statistics look great, but there's somebody suffering or feeling excluded or not participating or whatever it is. So like even the statistics, like when you go and you do a survey and you ask the organization and you say, how are we doing on diversity and inclusion? If the majority is overrepresented in the responses, you're going to get a disproportionate result because their own biases are going to feed in to like how they respond yeah, sure and so like even that is tricky and challenging sorry i know that's not a privacy topic but it's real oh it is real it's real it's real anyway more women in charge that's what we need that's yeah that, that's, that's what i say i love that and i think you know i think there's an aspect of of the privacy work that we do that relates to this well i mean you mentioned joy buamini at oh, mit yeah. and as we have you know as we have more thoughtful discussions about ai I think we're pivoting a bit, and which is a good thing, away from our traditional sort of pure, you know, risk and liability and compliance focus to a broader perspective on how is this impacting communities. You know, this is raising wow. issues of access and representation and inclusion. And I'd be very interested to see like how the privacy profession responds to this, because at the end of the day, we are the data experts, really. I mean, we're we're responding to incidents, we're advising on risks. 
we're making sure that everything's done responsibly and ethically, that's great. We also need to pivot, I think, and talk about what is the value and what are we bringing back? Not what we're earning from it, but like, what are, what are we enabling? And, and you know, I'm, I'm very encouraged by efforts such as Joy's that indicates to me more of a ground up kind of momentum instead of this top down, which is very dominating in the, in the discourse right now. It's law and regulation pressed down on the companies to make them behave better. Well, that's fine. I, I have mixed, and we can have that debate another time, but I have mixed opinions on like how successful ultimately that will be because yeah. a lot of these entities, the platforms in particular, no offense, Pedro, are now no, no. bigger than the governments and more impactful and more resourced than the governments sure. that, that regulate sure. them. So then it just means, well, you have to ship it completely. What right. tools do they have that now we can use as community members and to enable, not to suppress, to enable and use those tools and resources to get stronger, to get the access, maybe build our own. You know, there's a discussion around like, should there be another internet or should there be other you know, alternatives, other, other YouTubes, uh, you know, other, other social networking services, et cetera. That's interesting. You know, it's, we're not there yet, but I'm seeing interesting movement in academic circles, in community groups, um, things like Ubuntu and, and other, other things, mostly related to technology, which is why I think there's an opportunity for us here as privacy professionals to be part of that conversation. It's difficult to, to sort of insert yourself into because you've been in this compliance mode for 20 years. But if you want to go into the future, I think that's where it goes. Peter, let me ask you this, like, obviously, like, like the point you just made about like Joy's work and how it adds this like new perspective and new layer of analysis on our overall like industry strategy and thinking and way of approaching problem solving um, is obviously enriches our work, right? Like it makes our work more thorough and comprehensive um, as a in, as a privacy industry or whatever we want to call ourselves. Um, how do we get children into this discussion. And what, I don't mean like asking children about privacy, but like, it's kind of a weird example, but stick with me. Like in the eighties, when we decided that like children needed to, or seventies or whenever it was, we decided that like some level of like sex education in schools was appropriate. And we started experimenting with what we teach children about that. So like protect them from diseases and pregnancy. And, and like the same thing happened with drug, the DARE program and these kind of things. Is privacy at a level of significance and importance given like the proliferation of data, social media platforms, all these things that children need some sort of baseline education like in those other like uh, 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 topic areas or, or, or is it different? Like what are your thoughts on how we engage children in this so that by the time they're adults, they have some awareness? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. And it's, um, thank you. It, it's, uh, I think there's two aspects to it. One is, you know, one is the presumption that they need to know more. Some of these children know more than we do in some respects. Yeah, they're, more, they're more screen literate. They're more digitally enabled. Um, you know, they didn't grow up on media the same way we did as adults today. Um, but you're right. And I think that, um, that uh, the, other, the other dimension that is they, they need to know more about online safety. Uh, yes, and that, and pet safety. And, uh, and they need to be more <laughs> fluent in that. So there are, you know, there are a number of efforts. There's a, there's an organization in the States called Project Information Literacy. There's a great organization in Canada called Media Smarts. And there are several others. And, and ISC Squared, the security organization, has a, child, a children's online safety initiative that's been going successfully for many years. I'm sure the IPP has one as well. And a lot of these efforts are focused on, on you know, elementary education, getting into classrooms with programs on data literacy not privacy, because privacy is here, data is up here. So it's like, it, again, it's about not, you know, be proud to be a privacy pro, but understand you have a higher value as a data professional because you know so much about how data works, how it flows, where it's located, what are the risks? 
but also what are the benefits and how it can be used. So you can you have a role to play in this to the extent you want to get involved in these efforts or, or make that part of your own stuff. But I'm, I'm encouraged by what I'm seeing at these organizational levels. And I would say, yes, that is the answer to start to create this education and understanding, not just among professionals, but among the young as we grow into this, because this is just going to become, whether you like it or not, a more dominant part of not just how business works, but how economies work, how trade is conducted, how diplomatic relations occur, how we live, how we communicate and interrelate. Well, that's have really, to adapt. That's really well Ke said. Keanu doesn't, Keanu doesn't agree at all. That's my dog. He violated his <laughs> protecting children. He was just adamantly opposed. He's like, so I have like, my own program. This is how it works. <laughs> He's going to build his own thing. I've got one more question for you, Otis, because okay. I love the fact that you've like, been at this so long and have like a, 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 a wide lens of experiences. How do we make sure that as we continue to advance, um, our, our industry, our practice, our work, our privacy advocacy, privacy protection, uh, corporate privacy, data governance, whatever, um, that we don't leave behind like the communities that always get left behind. Um, developing countries, people, uh, uh, people of color, uh, uh, mar historically marginalized groups, um, uh, the poor. Like, how do we make sure that like we protect them too? And that they can take advantage of all the protections that we're creating and all of the like interesting technology that's being developed. Thank you. An excellent and important question and something I'm, I believe passionately in. As, as Andy mentioned earlier, one of the things I'm, I'm doing right now is I'm teaching privacy in Canada at York University, the country's second largest university. It's a brand new certificate program in information privacy, but it looks at this much more expansively than other programs do. In fact, of the 24 domains I teach, only three actually relate specifically to laws. The rest of it is talking about technology, civic impact, the future, the globe. And I think if there's one you know, common message that, that addresses what you're talking, it's, it's, it's starting to look at privacy from a cultural perspective because privacy is not actually just rights of the individual, obligations of the organization, or the legal and regulatory structures that are created to help protect both. But all of this comes from a deeper groundswell and that is the you know the cultural and social history of the country itself and that's why you know i'm disturbed frankly to see this this uh this movement of saying like well europe is the highest standard we'll just emulate that well what you're doing is actually emulating an entire cultural approach which is what does information mean to us as a society how do we view our businesses in it our people our posture on the world how we're going to relate to others that's our way of looking at it. And I'm, you know, I'm a humanist. I'm a globalist. I'm not about erecting boundaries around people or communities at all. I want to open this up. What I am talking about is authenticity and respect and understanding that, you know, information and data and its role in civic life is viewed differently. Um, it's very, it's one thing for us to look at this from a very Western perspective and then expect that like China and Korea and Japan are going to look at it the same way when they're thousands of years older as a culture. And there's all sorts of other dynamics as well. So I think it's, it may sound a little, you know, a little touchy feely, but it does start there. And I don't know that this awareness is really in the field now, which no, is it's not. How, how do people in this culture respond to this? And you can look at that as narrowly as this transaction or this conversation I'm having, or you can blow it out. Like, what do I do when I enter this market or I bring something to this community? How am I doing that? Do, what do I know about their perception of the activity concerned, but of us as an organization or me as a person? And am I, am, I, am I coming to sort of arbitrate that or just impose it? And you know, the, the disturbing trend of European data protection is the extraterritorial nature of it, the extrajudicial yes. nature of it. You know, we're not European businesses. 
with all due respect. And by the way, I, I have European heritage. My late father is German. My mother is Danish. I have a, a relative who is a who is a lawyer with Datatilsnet, the Danish DPA. So I know how European data protection works from the inside. And I still say this to you, which is this, you know, this notion of sort of like we're reaching out and we're going to impose these, res these restrictions or we're going to dictate through adequacy how the world trades data. We're going to be the international data arbiters. Well, how is that not data colonialism? Where you're it's imperialism. It's exactly. imperialistic. So it's you know, with all due respect, it's a terrific regime, but for Europe. So the rest of the folks in the world need to start thinking, okay, there's maybe pieces here I like. And even Europe has done this because they looked at Canada and they're like, oh, privacy by design. That's rather interesting. Hey, let's stick that into an article of GDPR. And they did. Um, and they called it a, you know, or, or, or a, you know, a data protection impact assessment, which is a PIA, which is actually originally an American concept, but they just relabeled it. So they're doing it. Others can do that too, without emulating it completely. Again, not to keep coming back to Canada, but I'm really intrigued by what they're doing Right now, they're at a pivotal moment where they're reevaluating their federal and provincial laws, including Ontario, the largest, and they have an opportunity here to shape something that is truly authentically Canadian, which, by the way, is not how the U.S. looks at it or Europe or Asia yep. or Latin America. So that's a long-winded answer to your, to your question, which is you have to look at the culture first. Privacy is culture. I'm very grateful for the depth of your answer. I, Andy's heard me talk about this a lot. Um, and I, I, you were very diplomatic in your framing, but like, I was born in a European colony. Okay. Like and yeah. the country my family's from, it, it has suffered for 250 years of devastation because of imperialistic and colonialistic, uh, decisions and, uh, and restrictions and, and laws being imposed. Um, there isn't an extractive nature to like the global reach of European privacy protections, but there is the other component of like. Euronormative, like uh, projection, right? I have great concerns about it because, like, the notions that are driving a lot of the policy regulatory, the policy debates and regulatory language around the world at this time are very like Euronormative wealth mindset based. Uh, notions. Um, and it is extremely dangerous, in my opinion, to like repeat mistakes we've made in the past, which is tell Latin America uh, how they need to run their businesses um, and how they need to uh, 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 implement data protection because one of their clients lives in Spain or whatever it is. Right. Um, and so the same thing goes for the United States, by the way. Europe is not the only one guilty. The United right. States do the exact same thing. Like right. CCPA is literally like American cultural and, and, you know, projection times 500. And, and like, I don't think anyone's doing that deliberately, was doing this deliberately. But with that said, like the presumption exists of like, we know best. Here it is, world comply and by the way we're going to write the law in a way that you have no choice like that to me is suffocating as a person born in you know on an island that was basically taken by force right um and and has 500 year history of, of, of nightmares but anyway that's yeah thank idea. you for sharing that and that that just grounds it and and i'm i'm I thank you for your your, your comments um yeah. i i think it's uh you know, I think Europe genuinely believes that you know even from a business perspective to realize benefits or growth from data, it, regulation is still the instrument. They just fundamentally believe in that. There was a terrific article actually written in Foreign Affairs of all places that talked about that. Like that's the vision for the future. You know, in, in America, it would probably be more entrepreneurial. It's going to be you know the free market dem democracy. It's going to be it, it's profit culture. It's money culture. That's just what it is. That's America. Like you're not going to get an American money culture 
to think like a European regulatory culture. Right. It just won't. And here, right. I just want to hold up a couple of quick reads that are very good on this topic. This one, whoops, this Can't is called The there. Brussels Effect, which is yeah. Anu Bradford's book, How the European Union Rules the World, um, says it all. She's a Columbia professor. It's excellent. And it doesn't just talk about privacy. It talks about a lot of different issues, climate, labor, um, all these different ways that, you know, regulation has become Europe's biggest export. It's not yeah. French wine. It's not German cars. It's not Italian foods. It's regulation. The other book is this, which is, first of all, Ruha Benjamin's Race After Technology, a must. This yes. one also is very good. It's called Privacy at the Margins. This I've is Scott that. Skinner Thompson. It's a little thinner. <laughs> um, He's a University of Colorado um, professor. He's talking exactly, Pedro, about what you were talking about. How do you treat data or how data should be treated, how it can enable, but also what the risks are in marginalized communities and, and how to change that. This is awesome. Thanks for sharing awesome those. Sure. I've read Privacy at the Margins. It informs my thinking quite a bit. It's a tremendous book. Good. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for being with us. You're the man, Peter. Yeah. Hey, I want to show you one last detail, one last historic detail. I'm wearing a shirt here. It says Privacy Pro. Now, IP peers from the old days will recognize this. This was actually an early like outreach effort to define what is the privacy profession. Nice. It was done in like 2006. And you can't get this shirt anymore, but of course I got one. But on the Vintage. back of it, uh, actually, I won't turn around. I'll just show this to you. Hang on, hang on, this is worth it. Uh, where'd I put that? Well, you know what? I'm just going to take it off. I'm going to take off the shirt. Oh, I love this. We're getting our. No, it's all right. Oh, it's all right. I got something underneath. Hang on. Hang on, everybody. Oh, no, what a shame. I was getting all really right. excited. I was like, all right. We're I love that you have an IAP. He has an IAPP shirt underneath it. There you go. I got one there, too. <laughs> how, many, how many layers of. Now, this one, this one's the 2007 trip that we took through Europe, like the first outreach to Europe. Awesome. So anyway, on the back of this shirt is a statement. So it's, you can see it's kind of printed. I see a privacy professional, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, printed, yeah. I'll, I'll read it to you. This was actually a contest that we ran back in 2006. Ori Dinstein, who today works for the Marsh McLennan companies, but back then he was working with uh, GE Capital. You know, the challenge was how do we define what this profession is? And I think this is a timely way to, to conclude this conversation because you know, 2020 was going to be a big celebration of the privacy profession if you use the IPP as a proxy for that, for that uh, community at, at 20 years of age. But we ran a contest that said like, what in a single statement encapsulates what a privacy pro does to help people like communicate this to their organizations, to their peers, to friends, to help like, what do I do? I'd say, you know, we get this asked all the time and I bet maybe you even struggle today explaining what it is exactly that you do with privacy. So Ori was the winner of this contest. He, you know, he's a, a major CPO back then, still is. And it's a, it's a mouthful, but he actually managed to do it in one statement, which still amazes me. And that's what's printed on the back of this shirt is the definition. And I'll, I'll, right. I'll read it to you. So a privacy professional is a leader who understands the technical, legal, and operational aspects of gathering, handling, and securing personal data, and who can establish and maintain a comprehensive strategic vision for handling all personal data of employees, customers, and suppliers of an organization in a manner that is legal, secure, and ethical, from the point of acquisition through the point of disposition, thereby gaining public trust in the organization's role as a custodian of the data. Hmm. Written like a true attorney. Like a true lawyer man. But it hits, it hits all the right points, I think. The activities, the, you know, the, yes. the various aspects, trust is in there, which I think is pretty essential. So not bad. And, and really, and I actually include that in the course that I teach. Like, this is privacy. Shout out. <laughs> 
Peter, I want to thank you for your leadership on um, in our entire profession, but more importantly, like the last part of our conversation, like your, I felt your passion about like the protecting the people at the margins to stick thank with you. the book title. And um, please, man, like I'm glad we're amplifying that messaging here. And um, I'm glad you're teaching it to your students. I do too. I teach a privacy course at Georgia State, uh, privacy law course at Georgia State Law School. And you know, kind of frame my entire uh, syllabus around fairness and privacy accessibility and the importance of that. So I'm very grateful that uh, we have an ally in you. And please, man, don't don't change. Keep out. Thank you, Pedro. No, that that means a lot. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I appreciate the work you're doing. And Andy, always a pleasure. This is where I'm going. Like, this is the work that's meaningful to me for the next 20 years, right? Is to take it in that direction. So I'm going to work hard at that. And thank you. And and I'm looking forward to hearing about your efforts also. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.